2: Extra time! Hello and welcome to the final Extra Time podcast of 2017. I'm Matt Chatterton and joining me is the entire RNZ sports team along with our sailing correspondent Todd Nile. Uh, we've had a pretty big year to review in 2017. It's offered up plenty of surprises. Uh, probably best to start with rugby where we had some of those big surprises. Uh, Joe Porter, our rugby correspondent. Joe... How, how would you sort of firstly, I guess how would you rate the year that we had uh, on on the New Zealand rugby scene
3: Well, uh, hard to sum up in one line, but the Crusaders will start with them, of course, uh, retaining the super Rugby title the eighth or ninth after a fairly lean patch for super rugby 's most successful side. Uh, of course we've got the breakdancing Scott Robertson as head coach for the first time And after a, a few seasons with Todd Blackadder where they really failed to live up to their potential He's come in and he's been a successful coach in the under-20s New Zealand scene And obviously has made a, a, a massive difference He's obviously very good with the players, a real personal co- type of coach Gets down on the ground and does some breakdancing with the team after the wins So he's certainly a... Uh
1: so you're just banging the table I think what I'm doing. There's the, the mics banging. <laughs>
3: I'll start again there, matey.
1: <laughs> Give it a crack.
3: Uh, well, 2017 for the rugby year. Certainly uh, the Crusaders kicking things off with another story of success to add to their chapter. Uh... Scott Robertson in his first year in charge, coming from the New Zealand Under Twenty setup, he he did bloody well. Obviously, he took them to the title in his first year, something that Todd Blackadder couldn't do in many many seasons with the team. So they're back on top of things, probably probably where Crusaders supporters think they should be. And a great breakout season as a coach for Scott Robertson and Sam Whitelock, who led the side this year in Kieran Reid's absence as captain. So fantastic year for the Crusaders, Super Rugby's most dominant team historically, and now back winning again. Of course, the All Blacks, 13 tests, 11 wins, 2 losses and a draw. Maybe not the best year for them. A lot of depth building and uh, some patchy results. I didn't see a complete performance from them this whole season. Obviously, the Lions series was a was a fantastic spectacle, but a little disappointing that there was no winner. Um, yeah, I'd have to say a fairly middling year from the All Blacks, but they won't mind too much heading towards next year, which will be the big one before the World Cup. Um, Black Ferns, it's got to be the women's rugby year in New Zealand that's got to be the biggest story you'd have to suggest winning the World Cup and going to sort of reclaim their spot at the top of women's World Rugby taking over England again after being knocked off their World Cup thrown the last time round uh, a massively successful year for them Team of the Year at the World Rugby Awards Team of the Year at the New Zealand Rugby Awards a cup, uh, Portia Woodman named World Women's Rugby Player of the Year and uh, the Women's Sevens team of course winning the World Series as well so a fantastic year for women's rugby be a breakout year hopefully it pushes them closer towards some full-time professional contracts and a, and a fully professional domestic competition that's obviously their goal and hopefully they'll start to i guess bear the fruits of some of their success
2: yeah i guess uh, we've uh, we're seeing that now i see steve Chu in the last couple of weeks has even been talking about the progress they are starting to make there with a professional women's league uh, for you joe or anyone else i guess what was the biggest surprise i guess of uh, 2017 on the rugby scene
3: well, oh, to be honest, the lack of competition from the from the All Blacks rugby championship uh, teams really stood out for me. The Wallabies were really up and down. The Springboks, another poor season for them, coming off their worst one ever. So, the lack of competition, I guess, in that in that uh, rugby championship was really really stood out to me as compared to what's going on in the northern hemisphere with the, the sort of resurgence of Ireland, the rise of England, and and uh, Scotland, of course, coming back into the fold too. So, it's just looking now that the All Blacks' strongest or toughest competition comes with the Northern Hemisphere. And two or three years ago, you wouldn't have said that, but now it's a certainty.
2: Indeed, indeed. And in 2018, we've got England coming up. That's what everyone's sort of been talking about, I guess, already following the Lions series. Uh, Have you got any expectations for where the All Blacks will head in 2018?
3: I'd imagine they'd probably want to win every single game they play, settle on a, 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 a a combination that will see them through the 2019 World Cup they'll be looking for a much more clinical performance throughout the year. This year was trying to implement new game plans, trying to, I guess, recover from the losses of some senior personnel and deal with a whole lot of injury uh, disruptions. So next year they'll be looking to really just put the foot to the pedal, make sure they nail down some fairly clinical and perfect performances, settle on their top choice team and head into the 2019 World Cup, having not lost a game, having really stamped their authority again on the game and, I guess, sending a message before that 2019 World Cup that the All Blacks are back to their peak.
2: Yes, it'll be interesting to see how that does unfold next year. I guess uh, moving forward we'll take a look at uh, another big sporting moment of the year for New Zealand uh, and that was the America's Cup. I'm joined by Todd Nile, our sailing correspondent up here in the Auckland studio. Todd, winning the America's Cup of Team New Zealand for the third time in Bermuda. Where does that
4: rank for you in terms of the success of the syndicate? I mean, it, it felt for me as big as that first win back in 1995, you know, which is not to discount the 2000 win at home, but this year in 1995, both off the back of, you know, a reasonably long period of doing well, but never quite getting there. Um, having a sort of a new crew on board, having not the biggest budget and you know, they don't talk numbers but the budget was significantly smaller than some of the other big players there, winning the the technology war. Um, you know, not a complete sweep. You know, mm-hmm. they did you know, they did lose a race, but you know, they went into this one least time on the water, least time in Bermuda. They had that setback, you know, on one day of in, you know, going up, Breaking a wing, coming back, fixing that, going out, having the cap size, coming back from that and winning, uh, you know, it was a pretty masterful performance.
2: And I mean, I guess also looking at the, some of the innovations they made with the uh Claws that we saw before it, that, uh, that do you think
4: proved to be the difference in, in, the, uh, in the America's Cup? Yeah, I think it was that design approach, and they went, you know, all these things fitted together. They didn't have as much time. They didn't have as much money. They consciously had to decide to try and take a giant leap mm. somewhere in the technology thing and did it, you know, partly with, with the psych laws, which, despite what the other team said at the time, did turn out to be a significant advantage in pumping all that hydraulic power that they need to manoeuvre quickly in those races. So, yeah, a a pretty stunning win from a technology point of view. Tom, Mm, do mm. you think
1: um, with the Halberg Awards not naming Peter Burling or having him nominated, what do you you make of that?
4: I guess that does reflect that sort of hardcore team culture that they've... You know, they've tried to hold in Team New Zealand on and off over the years, and you know it is all about the team. You you know, you can't discount the you know the significant individual brilliance um, that Peter Burling brought to that campaign. But I guess that is underlining that you know, with the technology and the other things that happened, that it was a team effort.
1: I suppose, interesting. I was just looking back, I see Grant Dalton was a finalist in the Sportsman of the Year in 2001 for his uh, round-the-world catamaran effort, so uh, interesting. Yeah, and that, there have been individuals yeah. in the past,
4: you know, Russell Coots has picked up just about everything that there is to get along the way, I, you know, I guess they, you know, the team uh, culture won out this time on that
1: one. mm mm-hmm.
2: We're two now, Todd. Um, Team New Zealand are cup holders, and they hold uh, the rights to the rules and the uh, location for the next cup. Sort of what? Uh, what sort of? And we know what uh, the boats are going to look like. They're going to be these massive monohulls. What sort of do we know about the twenty twenty one America's Cup at this stage?
4: Well, I mean, despite a lot of the silly noise that has been out there, it is going to be in Auckland, and always has been in Auckland. That that backup of having Italy was, you know, it might have been a play just to give New Zealand. And Auckland a bit of a hurry along. Uh, it was o- only ever going to not be Auckland under catastrophic circumstances. So, you know, it is Auckland. Um, the the team probably contributed to some of the debate with that funny half-hearted trip to Tauranga. <laughs> uh, there was the nonsense about Sochi and Abu Dhabi. So where we're at, the the infrastructure that's needed has basically been agreed by Auckland Council. They expect by mid-January to have a resource consent application needed for the wharf extensions. You know, there's still a bit of funny business with the government that had an alternative that they are still going to work through the case against that alternative to make sure that it is not doable and it really doesn't look doable so that's a kind of process that's going to happen the next thing that that will kick off in the new year is that well it'll be another interesting phase that commercial negotiation between team new zealand and the government on you know who pays what towards the event and this is not you know a a radically new concept Uh, You know, the event fees were paid to get the World Masters Games in 2017 back in 2000 and 2003 in different ways the government contributed to the running of the event. But, you know, there's obviously going to be an interest there. Both Team New Zealand and the government are going to have significant commercial figures involved uh, in those discussions. End of March on the event side. We get to see that what they call the class rule for the AC35, the, the fine design of the boat, and from that point, the teams can get into the serious business of designing these, you know, the big foiling monohulls, and and ready to get their first ones in the water a year later.
2: Finally, from me, uh, are we likely to see our old arch nemesis, Oracle Team USA, back at uh, back at the? Uh
4: America's Cup. things are apparently really quiet on that front, and I guess you'd you'd almost have to if you had to guess, you'd almost say no uh, in that Jimmy Spittle still seems to be out there expressing you know interest in all sorts of things being non-committal about Australia. One of the key organisational people from Oracle Grant Simmer, has now gone across to Ben Ainsley's team. Um, you know will they be a surprise entrant? Possibly, possibly not. There are other American teams, you know, more vocal, more advanced. So, you know, maybe maybe Larry Ellison's going to call it quits.
2: Mm, thank you very much for that, Todd Nile, out sailing correspondent. All right, we'll turn our attention now to the Rugby League World Cup that the New Zealand Kiwis were involved in last month. Do we have to? Thanks for that, Joe. Um, the <laughs>
1: okay, oh,
2: nice. hey well you give, had the well, joy of covering that, didn't you? Exactly, man? exactly. <laughs> given given that you got to cover the uh, the quarter final that the Kiwis were knocked out of, we might I might throw a few curveballs at you. Um, first, oh, actually, good, I am going to do that, uh, Joe. So first off, what did you make of the World Cup? What did you What did you think of overall and, and New Zealand's performance? oh
3: well, look, if we can leave New Zealand out of it just for a second, the World Cup. Itself was a, a real showpiece for Pacific rugby league. I mean, the, the Pacific supporters were absolutely phenomenal. The Tongan fans, Fijian fans, Samoan fans. I mean, you must uh, you you went to the Hamilton game, Tongan, New Zealand. The the atmosphere at those matches was just incredible, better than any All Blacks game I've been to, bar maybe against the Lions. The the British and uh, Irish Lions fans were incredible, but I mean, the Polynesian fans, Tongans in particular, were just remarkable this World Cup Mm. and I mean I don't know how much of that played a role in in their great run at the tournament but boy oh boy the the fans were fantastic and I've never experienced atmosphere like that at any rugby league games so that was a real positive however the Kiwis goodness me I mean if you talk about a way to just blow a campaign it was woeful absolutely woeful I mean you go one week from being the first tier one nation to ever lose to a tier two team and then the next week you back that up with a tepid 4-2 loss to another Tier 2 side. It was even worse than the one you've lost to the week before. And then in the, in the press conference after the match, when you've been dumped out of a quarterfinal in your own country, when you are rated one of the top two favourites for the tournament, to come out and say you're incredibly proud of the side and the team's been in no better place than they have is just rubbish. So it was just an abysmal campaign, an abysmal analysis, and looking at Adam Blair and Coach David Kidwell after the game and and the uh, post-match press conference, they didn't really have any idea what they were talking about, and it maybe was a reflection on why their campaign was so poor. Oh, we felt like we've got this team in the best place it's ever been, and the culture's never been better, we've never worked harder... Well, why have you lost and p- produced your worst World Cup performance ever? I mean it was just horrific and mm. no accountability no responsibility taken for their actions and then for some of the Kiwis players to come out and fire shots at the media and fans for essentially sabotaging their campaign and successfully doing so, I mean come on you know what the media are like, we can barely organise a cup of tea <laughs> together let alone a <laughs> compelling and convincing saboteur <laughs> campaign against the Kiwis <laughs> it's just ridiculous and that would have a- a- alienated them from the fans even more And New Zealand Rugby League, it was a real Real rough job, and they've got a big task ahead of them to to not only improve their performances on the field, but to I guess you know get some of the faith from the faith from the public and the fans back because they've lost them. That's for sure.
2: Mm. I think I think there are just, a couple of points there. Oh, do you want to add something there, Clay? Come on in. Yeah, I was just going to say just going back.
0: You have to go back even further this year to to where the sort of woes started. You talk about that mid-year test with the the, the big loss, and then the the cocaine scandal involving the captain of the team and one of the senior players and it just went downhill from there, didn't it? And New Zealand Rugby League didn't handle that well at all. And no, nah, the players started, started to revolt
3: again, you know, because of Bromwich and Proctor being not allowed to play. You know, there was obviously some some ill feelings amongst the camp. Part, apparently that played Do you think they should have and, been
5: allowed to play though? Wasn't that like setting a line in the sand and saying that's not good enough?
3: Yep, and they that's the, the, the you know, the option they took, and just it turns out it was probably the wrong one. They were their two best players. A lot of people within the Kiwis camp thought that Kidwell handed it poorly, and it played a role in Jason Taumalolo's decision to defect to Tonga, so it obviously had ramifications.
0: I think it's, the only if, if you could say your only time you would feel sorry for New Zealand rugby league and the Kiwis was uh, Jason Tamalolo's decision, which no doubt had a huge impact on on not only the Kiwis World Cup campaign but also on how well Tonga went, uh, mm. I don't necessarily disagree with his decision, but we have to say the way he handled handled it was very poor, and I think he got away very lightly actually from the public because of the the goodwill and the and the um, the excitement surrounding the Pacific Island teams, particularly Tonga. I think he got away very lightly with that move, but very poor form from a guy who's been in the game at a professional for a long time. Um, that was the only place where you could perhaps say the Kiwis were hard done by. Other than that, uh, only themselves to blame and, and a lot of work to do to get back to where they were.
1: Well, it's unfortunate that he seems to be simply out of his depth, doesn't he, oh, at no international doubt. level? It's and it will be interesting, given that there's now been a, a, a gap of time between that, that um dumping out of the World Cup and now we've got this independent review Mm -hmm. underway come sort of end of January, February. Um, Hopefully that's all going to be made sort of public and and it will be uh, quite interesting to see what does fall out of that.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you you can imagine that there could be massive changes within the whole governance board as well. Alex Hayton, the CEO, his job's got to be on the line too because he's overseen a very poor period of New Zealand Rugby League.
2: Mm, no doubt, no doubt. I guess we should also highlight one, one sort of probably shining light out of uh, New Zealand Rugby League and that was the Kiwi Ferns making it to the final where they did unfortunately lose to Australia in the World Cup. But, yeah, there's not much uh, not much positivity to say about uh, that organisation and their teams at the moment. Won't even go to the Warriors. Oh, my <laughs> God. Um, let's, let's turn our attention now to motorsport, shall we? Um, had quite a successful year on the motorsports scene. Um, I know, Clay, you and I have had numerous conversations about this in the newsroom. Brendan Hartley uh, going to Formula One this year um, sort of proved that, you know, he is capable of footing. It with the best. What, what did you make of his uh, time in Formula One, and then we'll uh, also touch, obviously, on his uh, World Endurance Championship.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's very hard to overstate what an achievement this has been from Brendan Hartley to get to Formula One. Not just not just the fact he's a he's a Kiwi from a although a, a proud motorsport heritage here in New Zealand. Growing up here, you don't have the competition and, and the funds that people in Europe and, and other parts of the world have access to young drivers so that in itself but obviously Formula One's become a, a commercial beast these days and teams now are highly influenced by by money and the ability of, of drivers to bring sponsorship money in. Obviously Brendan Hartley doesn't uh, necessarily have that against others so for him to to get the nod to get uh, some time in Formula One and obviously now a, a full-time contract says a lot about uh, his abilities as a driver, but also his abilities uh, off the track uh, in, in his role. There's a lot of uh, work that goes in with en- team engineers, uh, developing cars, and, and his time with Porsche in that World Endurance Championship uh, working on a highly, highly advanced hybrid car has clearly played a role and, you know, he obviously had a setback early on in his career to come back and he's bounced back and that played a role. They obviously saw that he he didn't just throw it in and he was willing to to bite down and, and, and really have a decent crack at it and come back at the age of 27, 28, I think. To make it um, says a lot, and it's a huge achievement. Uh, sometimes I think probably motorsport doesn't get quite as much of a play because of certain other sports play such a big role in this country, but that's, that's a huge achievement. And then to get a full-time contract on top of that, uh, yeah, a, a massive, massive uh, effort from Brennan Hartley.
2: Well, his achievement at Le Mans and with the World Endurance Championship as well, though, can't go sort of unnoticed. I mean, I mean, you told me that you sort of think that uh, the World Endurance Championship somewhat is more difficult even than Formula One at times. Uh, him, what him and Earl Bamber, the uh, fellow New Zealander, achieved this year, can't. Um, yeah, we must pay homage to that as well, shouldn't we? Oh,
0: absolutely. I think Le Mans is is one of the three. Uh, pinnacle events of motorsport alongside the Monaco Grand Prix and the Indy 500. Uh, it's it's held in huge esteem in World Motorsport, the Le Mans 24-hour race. Obviously, Earl Bamber won it on debut two years ago, which was a, a huge effort in itself, but for two Kiwis in the same car to win that event, and not only win that event, but dominate that championship and go on to win the world title, Hartley won the world title in 2015 as well. They, these are Kiwi drivers succeeding at the, the very highest level of motorsport. Formula 1 gets a lot of the Uh, A lot of the the publicity, it's the the glamour uh, championship of the sport. But the World Endurance Championship, it's very difficult. You've got to remember these cars uh, are highly technical and they're also racing in fields of cars that have had mixed speed. So you have to overtake, you have to, the concentration levels, uh, you know, it it takes, a a lot goes into it. So um, I think, yeah, it's a huge, huge effort from from those two guys. Obviously disappointing that Porsche is going to drop out. Brendan's picked up a, a full-time Formula One drive which is brilliant Earl's going to go back to um, to race GT cars which is still a, a very high level of motorsport so these two guys have achieved uh, massive things and are just probably the sort of the, the top of the cake for for what is a really is a golden age for New Zealand motorsport at the moment
2: move on to uh, some cricket shall we um, take a look at the black caps uh, year this year um, Stephen I guess you might want to come in on this one um, the black caps played in the Champions trophy Uh they had relatively terrible uh, Champions Trophy. Actually, I think they finished <laughs> did last. Um, what, what? What? And terrible. Then they played in uh, in India as well, where they uh, probably should have uh, won that tour after the start they got off to. What have you made so far of the uh, or the or the whole twenty seventeen season?
1: Well, it's sort of been a bit slim pickings, uh, hasn't mm. it, really? I mean, uh, you you mentioned there that uh, the the Champions Trophy. I mean the, and then the White Ferns had a bit of a shocker in their their World Cup as well, not getting past. Uh, Pool play, uh, yeah, slim pickings. So not not much to go on, but yeah, disappointing. There, they, uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, the Black Caps too have never won a, a one day series in India, and they had another crack at it this year, got got close, but then fell on the final hurdle, the the deciding game of the series. At least this time, um, it was a bit of a contest as opposed to previous mm-hmm. times when they've got themselves in the position of winning a series only to to fall over quite limply. Um, I suppose you've got, got to talk just even the, just a week or so ago, Ross Taylor equaling Martin Crow and Kane Williamson at the uh, the top of the test century uh, run list or seventeen test centuries. Uh, I suppose that's sort of really the highlight of of, of, uh, of, of the year um, and we've got um, a busy one day and t twenty program over the summer, and then of course England England are here for a couple of tests in, in March. Uh, but but as far as, as cricket goes, yeah, uh, you know, not, not not a huge year for for the Black Caps.
2: No, not indeed. And in fact, we'll move on to the next one that quickly. It was that slim. Um, <laughs> move on to the All-Whites. Uh, they were a big talking point this year. Clay, um, you covered uh, their World Cup qualifiers and uh, sort of their build-up to that where they lost to Peru, obviously. Um, what what did you make of the uh, qualifiers? And I guess also we've also got the news now that Anthony Hudson is, has left uh, the All-Whites. What did you make of uh, his tenure as well?
0: Yeah, I guess it's probably one of these ones where it's easy to work your way from the most recent back to the start of the year. <clears throat> Obviously the big event for the All-Whites was always going to be these November qualifiers and up against a fifth place team from South America, they were always going to be up against it, there's no doubt about that. Uh, I think I think we have to say that they put in a, a respectable without being a, a outstanding or sensational in any way. Um, a great effort in the, in the first league in Wellington to to keep the tie alive with a, with a nil-all draw and Uh, even had a couple of chances where they possibly could have stole that game but to go over to a place like uh, Lima and uh, everyone uh, saw the scenes out of Lima and just how fanatical they are about their football there and all the obstacles that were put in the all Whites' way while they're there which to me is all part of a part of the game and I think you have to sort of admire that in a way how passionate they are Um, it was always going to be a very uphill task and a 2-0 loss and that and that game perhaps wasn't that surprising and and saw them bow, bow out, and, and then to see Hudson obviously depart after that, I think that was probably always on the cards. In a way, uh, the All Whites has has always been something of a stepping stone for Anthony Hudson. If the All Whites had qualified, obviously we would have seen him stay. But he admitted he's admitted from the start he's an ambitious young coach, and that sort of lent itself to to him perhaps heading somewhere else once he'd once he'd finished his time here with this World Cup cycle. So, uh, yeah, look, I think. You have to. You can't say the All Whites were, were disappointing or poor. Were they outstanding? No. Uh, they've always. They're always going to be up against it with the obviously the a lot of the players playing overseas and the challenges that that brings and getting games and, and the money that New Zealand football has to do that. So obviously uh, the big news now will be to see who who steps in and replaces Anthony Hudson. Uh, there's no obvious candidates at this point, but. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of interest among the football community over the next perhaps uh, three or four months to see what happens there and and who's going to step into that role and lead the All-Whites through to the 2022 uh, World Cup, hopefully. Um, And I suppose with
1: that one too, Clay, of course, they get a direct qualifying spot through Oceania next time around. Uh,
0: 2026, that comes in. The the following World Cup. So uh, I think there was murmurings that New Zealand football uh, were perhaps trying to uh, use that as promotion for the next coach that, that whoever mm. the next coach would be would, would effectively have a spot in the World Cup obviously you've got to get past the Pacific Nations but uh, yeah, 2026 20, that comes in, so it could, could be hard work for them finding a a, a decent coach. But uh, we, we shall see. Him,
2: sure. <laughs> 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 well, funnily enough, and news, Justin, Danny Hay resigned as under 17s coach, so yeah. there's a possibility he yeah. may uh, slip in there. Um, thank you for that, Clay. We'll move on to uh, netball now, um, Bridget. Uh, let's take a look back at the Silver Ferns season. Uh, they won the quad series after a bit of a surprise win over Australia, and mm. that, and then but then got. Absolutely pumped in the Constellation Cup, losing four-nil in the series. Um, how do we how do we rate that uh, performance of the Silver Ferns in the sort of latter half of the year?
5: Um, yeah, it's extremely disappointing. The um, concerning part about the Constellation Cup is that they sort of progressively got worse over the course mm. of the four games. The margins just got bigger and bigger. So it wasn't you didn't get the sense that they were learning any lessons from their losses. Um, and the, you know, I mean, the Silver Ferns met Australia in six games this year, and they only won one. Uh, you know, that quad series was a but that quad series game was a bit of a surprise, and Australia went back to the drawing board, did a bit of home and that's sort of all it, all it took for Australia to get the better of, of New Zealand again um, so the signs aren't great for the Commonwealth Games, Australia didn't even have their top defender Sharni Layton. she was rested throughout the Constellation Cup series um, and the silver Ferns also need to keep their wits about them when they meet England at the Commonwealth Games next year they are in the same mm. um, pool or group as England at the Com Games and England beat them twice this year and that's that's unheard of. I think that's, that would be the first time that's ever happened. And England are reaching a point with the players they have got at the moment. There's, they've got a really a group of core group of players in English side now that are reaching the twilight of their of their careers, really. And they will be a threat, I think, for New Zealand and even Australia at the com Games next year. Um, yeah, I mean there there are multiple issues for the Silver Ferns. Um, the mid court and attacking end just didn't gel during that Constellation Cup. Um, obviously we don't have Laura Langman there at the moment um, and they had a few issues on defence as well
2: Mm, yeah, uh, that was the point I was going to raise. Is that when I was watching the games uh, against Australia, that we really mm-hmm. seem to lack any real um, cohesion in that mid court. And you mentioned Laura Langman there. We've we've heard from Janine Southby that there is the possibility that she could come back for the Commonwealth Games. All this toing and froing. Do you think it's good for for the Silver Ferns squad leading up to the Commonwealth Games, knowing that you know Laura Langman may come in, she may not. What they don't know what's sort of going on here.
5: Yeah, it's not great. Um... Yeah, I, it was a bit of a surprise when Laura said she was um, pulling out of the um, Sunshine Coast Lightning for next year. Um, but, I mean, she has been in Australia for the past couple of years playing in their domestic league. She's been playing elite-level netball since she was probably 17 years old. Um, 17, 18, she would have um, made the Waikato Bay of plenty side. So, I mean, I don't, I'm not surprised that she's possibly burnt out and just needs a rest. Um, I do think if Laura wanted to be back in the Silver Ferns right now, she would have been named in that quad series team yesterday. She, there's, there's no doubt that the Silver f- that Janine Southby and um, Netball New Zealand would be, you know, wanting her to get back in that team uh, in a second. Um, so it's I think it's really in Laura Langman's court. Um, yeah, I think she probably does. Possibly she needs a rest, um, but I think the other thing that might be holding her back is she probably feels a little bit guilty not that she needs to feel guilty but she probably does feel would feel guilty if she just waltzed back into the, to the team at the expense of someone else who's played in the netball in New Zealand and who's been going to all these silver, silver Ferns camps this year. And she doesn't want to be seen as this person that just waltzes back in the country and just goes back into the team just like that. So I think that might be holding her back as well.
1: Although she mm. might need to look at the greater good, does she Bridget? Because mm. obviously without without that, yeah. I mean, they're, I, they're I hope she gets. Over, I hope yeah. she gets
5: over any guilt that yeah. she might have. Because at the end of the day. I can't see how the Silver Ferns can beat Australia at the Commonwealth Games mm-hmm. if we don't have Laura Langman. So mm-hmm. I hope... I'm sure New Zealand netball are doing all they can and not holding back and saying, we want you. Um, and I hope that Laura Langman gets over any guilt she might have because, you know, why why wait another... What, she, what might happen is that she comes back in 2019 for the Netball World Cup, but it, she's available because she's now no longer playing for her in the Australian defensive league, she is eligible, and it's um, gutting to think there is um, Laura Langman's out there and available, but when she's not playing in the team. And why we don't want to wait another year to get some su- potential success against Australia. We need her now. So, <laughs> I, I, I yeah, I want her in the team. Yeah.
2: Get her in the team. Yeah. All right, <laughs> moving on um, to athletics. Um, Stephen, uh, we had... Uh Tom Walsh winning the world championship in the shot put this year uh, for um, for the men's shot put. Uh, where does that rank for you in terms of uh, achievements on on the world stage
1: for Tom? Oh well, it's it's absolutely top notch for him, and I suppose it's one of the um, It's got to make him a leading contender for sportsman of the of the year when it comes to the Halberg Awards. I mean, uh, he went from bronze medal at Rio at the Olympics last year to beating Ryan Krauser and Joe Kovacs. He he did that amidst uh, a bit of controversy. A couple of them, uh, they both. Uh, had fell froze, yeah, and then then, then um, Krauser kept. Uh, he was protesting right up to the, the final mi- minute. In fact, he turned up at the medal ceremony the following day, so with a, in his track suit and everything, ready to get up on the the medal desk to in the hope that his protest might come through, which caused a, a wee bit of ill feeling. Um, so uh, you know, good to see that that Tom Walsh has come through. He's improving, and um, you know, a good a good bloke. You know, nice guys do do mm. win. Um, mm. You know, fantastic guy to deal with. He's also got his feet firmly on the ground when it comes to uh, just just the kind of fellow that he is. Um, not he's when not, he's
2: throwing, though, obviously. The, no, the but Halfway in
1: the year. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, not as long as he's not over that line. Uh, <laughs> but but he's, yeah, he's just a, he's, he's a top bloke. And he's, uh, like, he's come back home. He's helped finish off building his, his home. He's a sort of builder by trade. Um, and he's... Yeah, it's quite interesting too when you talk to him about how uh, the shot putters they do actually hang out together after the competition. I think it's quite different in the sort of uh, age of professional sport that mm. uh, I imagine competitors in most codes have little to do with it, with each other off the off the field, but they they hang out together. Um, he's obviously on on the rise. He's got plenty of confidence in his own ability, uh, and, as as he should. Um, and obviously, when it comes to the Commonwealth Games, um, he should be a shoein' in for, for a gold, gold medal. Mm. Well, as you mentioned that they are all friends, I remember last year when they had that event
2: out here where they got some of the you know the best uh, eth- or shot putters uh, at- from the world competing down here in New Zealand. Uh, uh, Tom took a bunch of the, I think Joe Kovacs and Ryan Krauser might have been two of them too. Mulberry uh, Sounds and they're having beers out on uh, out on the boat on Mulberry Sounds, so they obviously enjoy their what company. A beautiful
0: part of the world that is as well. Oh they? yes, of course, <laughs> well of done. course. Well played, Blake.
2: <laughs> just 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 on that, isn't it a nice throwback that? in the age
0: of professional sport where where money plays such a big role and winning is everything that these guys still have that winning is everything attitude, but they can be friends. I, I noticed Tom Walsh the other day wandering around his new house putting in some steps or something in his USA shot put jacket. So they obviously <laughs> trade gear and, and that sort of thing, and it's very nice. And I, I have to say I caught up with him, and I, I totally agree with Stephen. He is one of the real nice guys of New Zealand sport uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he, and he said something very telling to me. I said to him about the Commonwealth Games coming up, and he said there's two, uh, there's three medal, gold medals he wants, uh, I guess, hanging up on his wall by the time he's finished. And that's World Championship gold, Olympic gold and com Games gold. So he's, he's very determined, Well, nice, very determined to win and, and be a successful athlete.
1: Well, I think he's got his family that keeps him on the ground, too. I remember he said to me after he won uh, uh, the bronze medal in, uh, in Rio, he said, oh, yeah, went over to my uncle. And all he could say was, oh, that only makes your second loser. Good <laughs> <Could> be <anything. laughs> which, you go, thanks very much <laughs> uh, all people from that
2: part of New Zealand are great I tell you hey um, we'll move on now to another nice guy uh, in sport in uh, New Zealand Joseph Parker uh, the boxer um, although he's he's coming a bit fiery lately towards uh, British boxer Anthony Joshua but before we get to that uh, let's talk about his, uh, his year he only had two fights which for Parker is uh, unheard of he normally keeps quite busy fighting about four or five times a year uh, during the early stages of of his professional career. Um, Clay, what did you make of his two fights this year? They were very unconvincing wins that he had, but uh, they were wins nonetheless. Yeah,
0: I, th- I think he was uh, he was up against it probably. The, the, both the fights he had, he obviously beat uh, Razvan Kajanu in May. Kajanu came in after Fury. Huey Fury obviously pulled out, a lot of controversy around that. Kajanu, an ex-sparring partner, Kajanu was a very very durable guy. He's not a professional sparring partner for nothing. Those guys uh, are paid to get in punch. there and push and take a punch and, and go the rounds with these fighters before their fights. So it wasn't really a huge surprise. Perhaps disappointing that Parker couldn't find a, a punch that would would put him down. But a very wily campaigner, and um, I, I think it, it was it was disappointing and perhaps left people a, a little bit worried about where. Parker sits. Of course then we had a few months before he went over to eventually to to fight Huey Fury in Manchester and a fight I think a, a lot of um, Kiwi boxing fans after that fight were worried. I, I remember thinking that I thought he'd lost the fight because he hadn't hit Fury with many shots but obviously got that decision and, and in looking back at the fight and, and watching it um, Fury spent the 95% of that fight going backwards and Parker um, perhaps has gone down in some people's estimations because he wasn't able to track him down and hit him. I, I think Parker deserved to win that fight, looking back on it, but uh, it certainly didn't do Parker's reputation any good, and and not in, in the UK, where, of course, is the big uh, the big pull for heavyweight boxing mm-hmm. at the moment with what's going on with, on with Anthony Joshua. And and then, of course, since the Fury fight, we've, we've bubbled over into uh, all uh, the drama with Anthony Joshua and trying to get that fight over the line at some point.
2: Well, it must be concerning for Parker's promoters knowing that he he essentially isn't a name in in the UK because he just he just doesn't warrant that attention from what his last fights have been like. Um, he's obviously in the middle of negotiations at the moment for a contract with a fight with uh, Anthony Joshua, as you mentioned. Um, Joshua and him are sort of sparring, so to speak, over Twitter about uh, how much money each of the fighters should get. Do you think, Clay, this is a sign that Parker is worried he could lose his belt and is just trying to cash in on as much as he can before he loses his WBO belt? Or do you think, because he's a world champion, he does deserve at least a third of that prize money?
0: Yeah, I think it's hard to say. He doesn't deserve a, a crack at it. Uh, he does hold one of the, the four major heavyweight belts. Still, uh, it's hard to swallow that there's four belts and not just one, and we can't just be done with the whole argument. But uh, I think he, he does deserve it. It's easy to forget that he does have one of those belts, and, and that holds a lot of bargaining power. Um, One-third one to two-thirds seemed like a, a pretty good compromise to me, but Obviously, Joshua uh, holds a lot of power. He's a huge star in the UK, draws in massive, um, not only massive pay-per-view numbers, but sells out stadiums and you know, in a matter of minutes. So th- there is a certain amount of power there, and he's got a very wily manager in Eddie Hearn, but uh, there's been some entertaining back and forths between, obviously, David Higgins, who promotes Joseph Parker, and Eddie Hearn in the last few months. Uh, you get the feeling this fight is going to happen. It's just they're squabbling over the, the finer details at this point and at the end of March it looks like Cardiff will we'll see this fight go ahead but it's boxing. You never really know what can happen. Uh, Duco say they've got a backup fight against Australian Lucas Brown who did once hold one of the world titles some years ago. Um, they've got a backup fight against him scheduled if the Joshua plans fall over but uh, I think it's watched the space Eddie Hearn did say uh, only just a week ago that they thought they'd have the the Parker Joshua fight um, finalized before the end of this year. So obviously not much time, only a, a less than a couple of weeks to get to get that done.
2: Hey, um, guys, uh, have we got any predictions for twenty eighteen? Uh, what sort of we've got the Commonwealth Games coming up, the Winter Olympics, and a few other bits and pieces. What are, what are our thoughts on uh, on what New Zealand sport has? Inv- uh, um, what what is coming up for New Zealand sport in twenty eighteen
1: Well, I suppose just the com Games bound to be Dame Valerie Adams' last uh, hurrah in the in the um, in the shot put. Um, she's uh, obviously been around for you know several Olympic cycles now and been a been a great performer for New Zealand. But I imagine that will be her last hurrah. So that uh, we'll see her disappear from the international sporting scene in twenty eighteen
3: the All Blacks will win every game next year and lose to England on the end of year tour but they'll still win the 2019
1: World <laughs> controversial <League Cup. laughs> whoa, a whoa. Pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah I could yeah I could yeah I could go with you on that yeah end on, of year they struggle know, they end tie. of year they
3: always struggle they're always buggered mm, they'll be wanting to protect mm. players for the year ahead in Japan so they won't want to risk anyone and England will be absolutely up for it as will Eddie Jones Steve Hansen will too but he'll he won't be as excited about the game as Eddie will be. And I imagine that uh, yeah, England will just throw everything at it and the All Blacks might get pipped on that one. But, and when
1: uh, they come back England. to win the 2019 World Cup, they will pinpoint the loss to England as the catalyst for that success. <laughs> Stop yeah. that. You've
5: read it, my mind. You say it that gave them the kick in won. the butt they needed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well,
0: I think you'll find the last two World Cup victories, I think South Africa perhaps at both occasions in that last year, that, that last period, Um, before the the World Cup the following year the All Blacks have lost and everyone was disappointed and then of course they came back the next year and won the World Cup so perhaps that's the blueprint for success they also lost to Australia Uh, Australia before the 2015 World Cup as well went on to win and beat them in the final
3: so there you Mm. go
1: Bridget will we we see the Silver Ferns even make the final at the Commonwealth game will Jamaica knock them off (laughs)
5: Oh, oh I, I think if anyone knocks him off it would be England, not Jamaica. But um let's just say I won't I would not be shocked if the Silver Ferns don't make the final. Mm. Anyone suggesting
1: yes. Brendan Hartley's gonna win a Formula One Grand Prix?
5: Well is that even his role though? He's more of a tester, isn't he? Well, he's in the the, the, the you know the lesser of the two Red Bull teams,
3: and I don't know if any of those Toro Rosso guys did they did any of them get a podium this year? I don't think so. So you know, it'll be a reality is, If he gets a, if he gets a Formula it really One is. point, that'll be probably his, his best first goal.
0: Yeah. Well, that that would be a huge achievement. The reality is, he's not in a, in a car that's capable of winning. That's right. Lewis Hamilton can drive one of those cars and probably not not get on the podium. So uh, I think that says says a lot.
3: Sevens at the Com games will be interesting, though. They're obviously, New mm. Zealand looking to atone after Rio last year, the men's team in particular. Um, and Good F- start Fiji, this year. Fiji, yeah, great start this year, winning the second series and now leading the overall World Series circuit. So. Um, the com game sevens will be a real, real uh, blockbuster with with Fiji, Samoa, New Zealand, Australia. It should be a real cracker.
1: And we haven't even mentioned golf, Matt. No Lydia Coe. Oh. Have We talked about Lydia Ko. Oh, well, well, oh, we
5: haven't. About, she, will will, will she
2: ever down. win? Will she ever win again? Who knows? Hey, eh? no, I think I think uh, I think she'll figure out what's going wrong um, and make the. You know, make the changes that she needs she to will. she's a cool to, customer yeah, exactly yeah she, she knows what she's doing she's, well, let's be honest she's been, she stopped
3: now she still have achieved a whole lot more than most other female golfers <laughs> in history she's
2: still she's achieved a far more she's, than any of us have ever achieved hasn't she god I mean,
3: the fact that she I mean she's a victim of her own success in many ways yeah. I mean, she has mm. that breakout year world number one for so long and, and majors and you know tournament victories and then you have top 10 finishes and you have the odd win. Or, did she have a tournament win this year? No. Nope. No, nope. so top, top 10 finishes, and you don't come close. You're not the, not the best performances in the majors and mm. people think it's all over Red Rover, but golf's a tricky one and it's obviously a lot of it's in your head. So and, technical. Yeah, but yeah. she seems like a pretty cool and collected customer and uh, I imagine she'll come back. It's just, they've got a pretty, um, the women, women's golf, there's a lot of competition, isn't there? There's a, there's mm, a pretty strong a top 20.
2: Yeah. Um, one one prediction I'm going to make, uh, a little one just for uh, 2018, the mighty MC Hammers are going to take out the Meats Cup in 20- 2018. 2018, yeah. All right, Um, so that that is all I think we have uh, for extra time in 2017. Uh, We hope you all enjoyed uh, the sporting calendar as much as we have and we look forward to bringing you more coverage and analysis in the new year.